Hi, and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington, and I'm here with the burger to my burrito bowl. Jordan Crook, yes. How do you feel about being a burger? I don't know. I mean, like, burger is a word in gaming that means, like, you're not good. And then also I love burgers. Yeah. Oh, I should have been the burger. I'm not good at gaming. I enjoy it, but I'm not good at it. So that was unclear. But I do prefer a burrito to a burrito bowl. So I guess I'm cool with burger. I'm I'm good with burger. Yeah. And my name is actually Jordan, IRL, not Burger. So That's right. That is her name. You know her. You know me. We're your hosts on Found, TechCrunch's podcast that's all about the stories behind the startups. We got a real humdinger for you this week. We got one related, as you might have guessed, to food. We're talking this week to Chris Webb from Chow Now. Chow Now is online food ordering platform that helps locally owned restaurants get their businesses online so that their customers can have a great ordering experience and delivery experience. And they don't charge a lot of the big fees that other platforms often do. And at the same time, they provide a lot of solutions so that the restaurant owners don't have to go and figure out their own software stuff. It's easy to use if you have no background in software. And they've recently introduced their own app which is a bit of a departure for them. They used to be much more behind the scenes. Now they're a little more out there with their brand, which is something we talk about a lot with Chris. But let's let Chris explain it because he does a much better job than I just did. So on with the show. Hey, Chris, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, we were just talking about what feels simultaneously like ancient history and like it was yesterday, which was, I believe, officially Chow Now was founded in 2010, but I think this was the public debut 2012 or the product debut, maybe? You can tell me. That's exactly right. Yeah, it was the official launch of our first product was May of 2012, so almost exactly a decade ago. Wow. We got the company going in 2011. 2011 was kind of raise friends and family around, build a team of four or five of us, build a a buggy product, get it out there, test it, work out the bugs. And then 2012 was the the year that we actually officially launched it and started charging for the product. Nice. Yeah. And we had coverage on TechCrunch, which we'll link so you can go check out. It's got a screenshot in there of a very early (laughs) (laughs) product ordering page in Facebook. Have you seen that recently? Have you... Do you remember what it looks like? I do remember what it looks like. I haven't gone back and looked at it. Now I will as soon as, you know, as, soon as this ends, I'll, I'll jump onto it and, and take a look. Nice. Yeah, that was, I mean, I think it was, it was the year I joined TechCrunch. Jordan, when did you join? Just before that, right? May 10th, 2011. Right. Okay. So weirdly, a year prior to the launch of Chow Now. Uh, <laughs> can I say, I timed it. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you planned it that way. Yeah. But that was even that was early days, even for food ordering, Chris. There's a lot of distance. And like you said, it's been many years, but it also feels like yesterday. But can you tell us a little bit about that founding and what you remember about it and what the situation was like and how you came to the idea of building Chow Now? Yeah. So for whatever reason, I was drawn to food as a kid. I don't know why people are drawn to various things in life. And food was one of the things at a young age I loved. Fast forward, I then moved to New York in my 20s, spent the majority of my 20s in New York. And I don't think you can live in New York without loving restaurants. Right. Because, you know, you sacrifice so much. You live in a, a shoebox of an apartment, so you need to get out a lot. And one of the places you get out is restaurants. And I grew a greater appreciation for restaurants. As I was talking to more and more restaurants and friends that I knew that were kind of bartending and hosting and working at restaurants, I was just paying attention more to their business. And I realized that all the big national players were starting to roll out mobile apps and online ordering and everything else. And the independent restaurants that I love and loved back then and still do were at a disadvantage. And the only mm-hmm. thing they had back then was to join a marketplace who was going to charge them a, a big commission, take ownership of their customer, and then start forcing the local neighborhood restaurants to compete for the top spot on the site. Right. And those were the conversations with restaurant owners that kind of led to the thinking for about, hey, there should be a different way of doing this. And that's what led to Chow Now. Right. Yeah. I mean, customer, right? On the customer side, I guess you're thinking like, oh, marketplace convenience, great. But then on the other side, it just turns the restaurant and the restaurateur effectively into inventory, which is a pretty dehumanizing way to look at a small business, you know, often independent businesses. But it's also like, how do you outweigh that convenience desire, right? Because it's like, essentially, consumers are just like, I don't care. Or do they care? I mean, you've been in business now 10 years. It seems like people care. (laughs) Yeah, the convenience factors is no doubt very true. Early on, what we realized is that 
most restaurants already have an existing takeout business and they just needed a convenient way of providing ordering on a Friday night. Back then it was still kind of the era of calling up a pizzeria on a Friday night, being put on holds, placing your order after a couple of minutes of waiting on a hold, pulling out your credit card, reading the credit card number over the phone. And that's what you did if you were ordering for your local pizzeria, mm. which, you know, was, was only a decade ago, but it sounds so much longer. The Domino's and the Papa John's and the Pizza Hut's were all rolling out online ordering and yeah. they're all just kind of starting to, to dominate. And they were very vocal about it back then. I mean, Domino's was very vocal about, hey, we're going to put independent pizzerias out of business because, and they didn't phrase it this way, but they basically said they may have better pizza than us, but we have a more convenient way of ordering and convenience is going to dominate here. And so we heard that said, well, why don't we arm these independent pizzerias and coffee shops and other cafes and restaurants with tools to compete. Fast forward a decade. Now what you have are you have restaurants that would prefer direct ordering, which mm-hmm. is better for the restaurant, right? There's no commissions. There's no fees. They have that direct connection with the customer. And then you have all the kind of the delivery apps, which then consolidate all the restaurants into one app. Kind of to your point, they kind of think of restaurants as almost like food factories that mm. giving them wholesale pricing on food. They don't really care all that much about where you order. And so we are blending those two concepts, mm-hmm. taking what we believe are the best of both, which is one app that holds all your favorite local restaurants with the business model of direct order. And so no commissions, no fees. We share all the customer data and customer information with the restaurant. We believe that they should have a tight bonds, the, the, the restaurant and the diner. And that's a big focus for us now a decade later of, of what we're working on. Yeah, that makes sense as a blend because you can't get past the fact that, okay, customers have decided this is one way they want to discover new food, right? That ship has sailed, but at least you can be fair in the other ways to say like, look, you can still maintain a direct relationship. Like you said, like getting all the information, I think that's something people don't realize if they're not familiar with how retail, food, e-commerce, like any of those kinds of business operate is that the layer of intervention in your platforms between you and customer can be either very opaque or it can be transparent. And of course, the latter is much better for you as a business owner, but it's hard to come by, right? It is. It is. And one of the reasons that the delivery apps don't share that information is because then the restaurant can be more mobile. They can jump platform to platform, take their customers with them, right? When their customers are locked into a platform and they have no way of sending an email saying, hey, we are moving to XYZ platform, or, hey, we just launched our own brand and mobile apps. If you download the app, we will give you 5% off every order. It makes it very challenging for the independent restaurant to be able to do that type of thing and kind of be mobile. And it locks them in. And that's the key is that lock-in. What we realized, though, and, and this is kind of obvious to most, is we operate in a different type of marketplace. Most marketplaces, if you think of anything from like an Airbnb to an Etsy to a Craigslist to an eBay, the buyers and sellers don't know each other, right? Mm-hmm. That marketplace is making the introduction for the first time. You are going to rent a place on Airbnb. They're going to connect you with somebody that owns a place and you're going to, you know, and they'll make that introduction and then you'll go on from there. Restaurants are different because most diners, meaning the buyers, already know the sellers and they're very fond of the sellers, right? Yes. You already have your, your favorite place. I would guess sometime in the next week or so, you will go to a restaurant that you already know and love. And that's the way most people... So it's that discovery piece is less important in our world. And it's more about the convenience of making an order, having that one account as a diner. So you don't have to create multiple accounts with multiple credit cards on file. So we've handled all that on the back of our platform since that first article in TechCrunch a decade ago. We have treated the back end from a diner perspective as kind of a marketplace, meaning that one channel account that you create to order food, to put your credit card file, that's good at any of our 20,000 restaurants on the platform. Right. So the back end has that convenience from a diner. Now what we're doing is connecting the front end with one app, the Chano app, so that discovery is available. I mean, if you want to look for Thai food tonight and you don't have a local Thai restaurant, you can go into the app, you can filter for Thai and we'll give you kind of the local, local Thai spots. But that discovery happens a lot less. Even if you talk to someone like Uber reports this occasionally, like Uber Eats, like the average Uber Eats user only orders from the same three restaurants over yes. and over. Yeah, I mean- Anecdotally, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. So what we are building kind of plays on that. And we have built what we believe is the preferred marketplace for restaurants. And we're getting out to the world through actually our restaurant clients who are then going to their customers and diners and say, hey, use Chow now. It's better for us. It's better for you. Yeah. And getting out to the market that way versus taking out Super Bowl ads or other expensive ads out there. Cool. Yeah, I think Jordan, I'm already going to get into Shopify. I have to, but yeah. it's very similar to their evolution and approach too, especially with Shop Pay. Shop Pay is like a feature that a lot of people don't even know exists and links behind the scenes different Shopify stores, right? Like you have your shop pay credentials and they apply it, anybody who's participating. And then you can just reuse your credit card and everything on file, but it's sort of invisible. And I remember when I was at Shopify, we often had discussions about, is this good? Do people like that this happens? Do they know what's going on? 
are they frightened by it at times? Because you're going to essentially a totally different brand and you're like, hey, how do you know my credit card information or <laughs> information, right? Yeah. Because it's not branded on the front as Shopify. It's just yeah. like a small thing through checkout. And now they're moving into the shop app and it's sort of this toe dip into the marketplace approach and it's making the branding more present and forward. I'm just curious, did you run into any similar challenges when you're doing that? And was that part of your decision to evolve and introduce this app? No, we actually built that for ourselves. At some point along the way, in kind of 2017, 2018, we had enough restaurants on our platform that we wanted to order from as many of the local spots. And we just grew into the size that we didn't know every restaurant that we had signed up. I'm (laughs) I'm here in kind of West LA area, Santa Monica. So we said, wouldn't it be cool if we just put all our restaurants in one app so that we can... So we did that. It wasn't a hackathon type project, but it was like a little bit beyond that. Right. We put our product team on for like six weeks. We built that quickly through the app store. And then that product team moved on to building other product for our restaurant clients. And it kind of sat there and we used it and a few other random people would kind of find it, download it. We never promoted it. We never did any consumer marketing around it. We never had a dedicated product team on it. We were back to building tools for restaurants. So their own branded apps, their branded systems, CRM systems, automated marketing, kind of all that for the suite of products that we offer restaurants to get their brand out there. COVID hit, obviously, about two years ago, and the press started picking up on hey, DoorDash and Uber and others, they may not be so great for your local restaurants. What the industry had known for years from this commissions and the fees and everything else started to change. And then you started getting local cities starting to put regulations in place and fee caps and stuff like that. That then generated a whole nother kind of press cycle. And in some of these articles, Chana was mentioned as the alternative, a platform that doesn't charge commissions or fees and shares the customer data and angled us as a good player among a group of not so good players. And all of a sudden, the apps are ranking in the app store all hmm. organically. And we're like, oh, this is kind of cool. Eventually, we thought at some point we would circle back to it, but we just didn't know when. And now the app ranks consistently app store. It has for probably the last year and a half or two years with basically no marketing behind it. So late last year, we said, huh, we should probably do something here. And so we actually put a dedicated product team on it. We just hired a CMO. We started last month. She is just getting ramped up now, but we plan on later in the year starting to do some consumer marketing. Is that your first CMO? Yeah, first CMO. Wow. We've done kind of like B2B marketing, trying to get restaurants to to use our software and our our platform for a number of years, but we've never done consumer marketing. So she's fantastic. Really happy to have her on board. She comes from Medium. She ran marketing at Medium up until joining us last month. And I often think of it as a comparison and no one got this at first, but I think people are starting to kind of understand like Medium is, in my view, a very good marketplace for readers and writers, but they don't put themselves there. They put themselves as, hey, here's a really great software if you want to create your local blog on whatever you want to write on, you get it up and running in a matter of an hour if you want to get your first post out there. But then they bring this ecosystem of readers, these tens of millions of readers, and they will cross-pollinate your content with the readers that they think will read it. That is very similar to what we're doing is restaurants can use our platform, but tap into our ecosystem. So they can use our software tools or ordering just for their own takeout business. But Mm -hmm. by being part of our ecosystem, we have 20 million people that have ordered on our platform in the last year, all of channel accounts. And so they can tap into those 20 million people. I mean, in theory, right? The 20 million people across all the US. So it's not like they're located in New York, but in New York, we have hundreds of thousands. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a much larger base than they have just for their own takeout business. The idea is that we always want our platform to be commission-free and fee-free for restaurants. And so it's trying to find that right balance of like, how do we position our brands to sit alongside our restaurants brands without overshadowing them. We've right. always been behind the scenes. Yeah. We're kind of coming out from behind the scenes, but we don't want to then swap places. We just want to sit alongside our restaurants that we love. That would be at odds with, I think, with the mission that we started on 10 years ago. How do you balance that though? Yeah, no, it's a challenge. And this is where you have to constantly remind the team and yourself of our principles, our missions, because there are things that come up all the time that say, hey, this would be good for Chad out, but this wouldn't for our restaurant clients. Right. And we see all the time celebrities, companies, politicians, have a good reputation, do something stupid, and all of a sudden it crumbles and it's really hard to recover from that. And so I'm very sensitive to us doing something along those lines. A lot of the way that we're thinking about it is various events and things like that alongside our restaurants and really putting them on a pedestal. I mean, another example I talked to the team about is someone like Nike and all their sponsored athletes, right? Like sponsored athletes, like they bend over backwards for LeBron James or any kind of athlete that they sponsor, but they also want to build their brands and they obviously have a world-class brand in, in Nike. And so it's, there are examples, case studies out there that we look to, to see, okay, how do we do this? How do we make sure that we are bending over backwards for our restaurants? Those are our LeBron James of the world, mm. right? Those are our Michael Jordans that we love and are obsessed with, but we also want to make sure that people know who Chow Now is over yeah. time. And if we go too far in that direction, it's probably a bad thing. And we, we know it's a bad thing. 
Yeah, I was just curious. We can talk about that platitudinously forever, right? But like, what does that mean in terms of hard boundaries? So you just hired a CMO, right? Like, I'm sure this was like a constant conversation with this person of like, we need to get out there, but like not to the point where we're the star. We're not supposed to be the star. We're supposed to be a mirror, right? That reflects sunlight onto the restaurants. And what does that actually look like in practice? What are the limits to that? Where you're like, we're definitely going to take this interview or we're definitely going to do this commercial, but this commercial is going to be full of restaurants and not me, right? Like, what does that actually look like in practice? Yeah, I think that is a good example of everything that we do. Every time we put our name out there, it's in partnership and hopefully with collaboration of our restaurants and the input from them. So it's never just going to be Chanow standalone. I think everything that you'll see from us from here on out will have our restaurants embedded into it. This isn't a unique idea, but we had to do it, which is create an advisory council of restaurant operators who we run ideas past all the time oh, nice! so that we aren't just kind of talking to ourselves, convincing ourselves that we're doing the right thing. At least we have somebody to keep us honest and say, no, this is too much Chanel and not enough restaurant clients. It's going to be a constant battle. I mean, ads and campaigns and commercials and whatever we do in the future, we will probably have this discussion on a daily, if not weekly basis from here on out of where is it too much on Chanel? Yeah. How does it feel for you, though, your person who's been working for a decade now on this thing that is successful and you know what it is and the restaurants know, you know, where it matters, people know what's going on with Chow now. But you also look at like the broader restaurant industry. I mean, you just listed a few people, but like you have the Uber and you have seamless Grubhub power couples and you have Toast. Toast is also behind the scenes, but everybody knows what Toast is. So How does it feel for you just as a human being to be like, yeah, but like, I'm here, you know, like (laughs) we're doing cool. You know what I mean? Like, do you ever struggle with that personally? And I I tried to say that as gently as possible, but like, you know, you are below the radar or under the radar a little bit. We are. It doesn't mean you're any less successful, but it could be frustrating. Yeah. I think it's how you define success, right? What is that number one goal? If it is to be the largest platform in terms of number of restaurants on the platform, number of diners, revenue that we make, and it's easy to get caught up in that. That's kind of what most people on the outside will compare us to. I don't know if a week or two goes by without seeing a ranking of DoorDash versus Uber versus Grubhub. And that Grubhub has gone from the number one spot in the last four years to a distant number three. DoorDash has kind of taken over the top spot. And there is just a constant ranking. It's always by revenue. And no doubt we want to build a big business. That's what we set out to do is build a business. This isn't a nonprofit. But there's other ways of kind of ranking yourselves and defining success. And we want to be a good actor in the space. Some of the companies you named, I would consider good actors. And some I don't think are good actors. I think if you talk to most restaurant operators and owners, they would tell you that point of sale company is good. They're good for us. The way they price the products, their business practices are good. You then ask about a delivery app and you'll probably hear a very different story. And we don't want to fall into the trap. And it's very easy to do because investors and everyone else will do this for us of saying, well, you're number three or number four or number five. You have to be number one in terms of revenue. And I think we can build a multi-billion dollar business given the size of the space. I mean, that's the thing. It's like when you start looking at the numbers and I was kind of looking at the, the latest numbers from last year yesterday, so they're fresh in my head. $700 billion was spent at restaurants last year mm. and it's growing, right? So the projections are in the next couple of years, it'll go over a trillion dollars. There's so much money spent in our space that you don't have to be that number one player to have a massive, massive business out there. And so for us, then it's coming back to, okay, what can we live with to feel good about and how do we define success as being a good player? And there are other metrics that we think about, but you know, I'd be lying if I was able to completely check my ego at the door. Like there's that aspect of, I want to be number one. I, right. You know, most founders you will find are competitive. I, yeah. I think I'm competitive as well. It's easy to fall into. I got to constantly compare myself to the number one player in terms of revenue. And I do from time to time, but I don't think it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Well, and it's like not even revenue yeah. too, right? Like I think that there's this balance that every founder has to strike. And I think that most struggle with where the tech world in and of itself can be a hype cycle. I think that we at TechCrunch try our best to not be a huge cog in that machine. Like we try to tell the story as we see it. But when a lot of what you write about is that this startup raised money, it just becomes part of the thing. I think it's hard to tune out because there are now so many different ways to raise money. There are so many different ways to make money. There are so many different category defining startups that are coming in and nobody knows what the hell is going on until they have 70 million in ARR. And then you're like, oh, wait, (laughs) this is the thing that works. And so there's a balance that has to be struck between the personality type of a founder, which I think I agree with you. It's like nine out of 10 are going to be incredibly competitive people who want to be right. They want to win. They want to be number one. 
but then also to be able to like tune out most of it and they're like, ah, it just doesn't matter if I'm focused. And I think that that's a hard balance to strike because competitors are often looking at their competition and being like, what are you guys up to? I want to analyze. The only way I can be better is to understand this whole ecosystem. And it just seems like a really difficult balance to try to strike all the time. It is. And so that's where you kind of have to get inspiration from kind of like the Patagonias of the world, right? The companies that just say, screw it. We don't care about anything else. We will tell our customers, don't buy more clothing from us. You know, make your clothing last longer. And we are not in that camp. I think to clear your head from time to time, you have to kind of go back and read those stories and hear about these companies that are just, I mean, it's amazing what someone like Patagonia has been able to do. There's not many companies like that that have been basically able to give the middle finger to everyone in the industry and say, we don't care about this. We control our destiny. We care about revenue because we're a business, right? They are a business. They give away a ton of money. There's not many companies like that, but I think I, and obviously many, many, many other people look to them as inspiration. There's a few other examples. They're probably the number one example. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because Patagonia has like this, like you've mentioned it. My partner is reading the CEO's autobiography, right? Like there's this kind of like X factor, this not quantitative thing involved Mm -hmm. with that, that matters a lot, right? Like we all know in this room, we could go talk about it to almost anyone else. And they'd be like, oh yeah, Patagonia is the good guy, right? There's like something weird about that, that you can't show to shareholders. You're not like, oh, look, it's because we're the good guy. Or like, we got this deal because we're the good guy. Or we, there's not a direct line you can draw. And yet it counts for so much. And it's like that, that can again, be a difficult challenge to quantify something that is very qualitative, but counts for maybe more than anything else. Well, it's also, it's like super hard to pattern match that because another example would be Apple, especially like early Apple, maybe not so much current Apple, which is a different ship under Cook, right? But like it was something that so many people try to emulate. And the point is, it's not really emulatable, especially not cross industry, but not even within industry. And Patagonia is probably similar. Like if someone tried to do exactly the same thing as Patagonia, it would not work. Yeah, these are kind of one offs. And you have to go back to like first principles and be like, what do they do on a first principles basis that we can replicate? And then everything else after that has to look different because we're in a different position. It's very easy to fall into the trap of, well, let's copy what they did and then end up with absolutely nothing. Right. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I I agree with that. I I don't think you can copy anyone down to every last detail, good or bad. So talk about the other side of the spectrum. I just read Frank Slootman's book and Frank Slootman is the CEO of Snowflake and a legendary operator, not a founder. We'll tell you he's not, he says very early on the book, he's not a founder. He's not a board member. He's not an investor. He's not good at any of that. He's an (laughs) operator. He takes over companies and grows them to, I don't know where Snowflake is worth today, but, and, and this is his third time taking a company public in the last two decades. He is not the Patagonia type. He is is the win at all costs, hard charging. You could not be more polar opposites. Right. And I still read that book and I take inspiration. There's things I read through that I thought, man, this is a really cool way of doing it. And there's things that are like, we will never do it this way. So I think it's like picking and choosing. So there's like aspects of like the Patagonia's world that I love personally and, and take inspiration from. And then there's like the Frank Slootman way of just hard charging. Like there is no peacetime CEO thing. It doesn't exist. It's always wartime. We're always charging. You got to just defeat your competitor. Nothing else matters. And there's things there that I take as well. I wonder also yeah. if it's like useful to look at your actual industry ecosystem rather than looking like so broadly and saying like, I mean, it feels a lot like you looked at some of the competitors in the space and we're like, Never that. Yes. Never that. Almost like instead of things to emulate, it's like these are lines we'll never cross instead, right? Like we're never going to copy the way that they do X, Y, and Z. Like it's kind of like Twitter, right? If you put a little box around you, how creative can you be? And interesting things can come from that. Also terrible things if we're using the Twitter (laughs) analogy. There's no question there. I'm just chatting. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Circling back to the conversation for a couple of minutes ago, at least what investors are coming to realize and have in the last couple of years, are there enough studies and very smart people have written books about mission-driven companies and companies that have a purpose of doing good out there and how successful they have been? Something similar is there's also been studies on companies that appreciate really great design. And this probably started with Apple and talking about the comparison back to like Apple in the old days that have built design and good design into their DNA and compared to companies that don't. 
and their success rate. So there's been a number of studies. So you can kind of take those and can go to the investors and be like, see, this right. leads to more money for you. Right. Here are your numbers that you care about. They're yeah. over here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Not too far over here. Yeah. <laughs> still within reach. Yeah. Yeah. I do. This is a bit of a switch tracks. I'm still curious just looking at your work history. You talked about, you know, being in New York and just enjoying restaurants. But, you know, you're at Bear Stearns. You're at Lehman Brothers. You're at RBC Capital Markets. Jordan, there's my opportunity for my Canada plug, even though RBC Capital Markets <laughs> in the States is not really the same as RBC yep. in, in Canada. But same branding. And you were at Lehman Brothers, correct me if I'm wrong, but right up until the collapse. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I was there. I was there that Sunday with my box packing up my desk, like thousands of other people. Wow. So I which is ingrained in the way I think about the world and things like that. So I, I remember, again, luckily I was in my 20s. I had very little money at stake. There are stories that are much worse. People yeah. close to retirement who lost a lot of money and were not in a good place. I was in my 20s. I didn't have much money to begin with. The little amount of money I lost, I was able to kind of recoup. Yeah, like, yeah well, it's a wash. Reset. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the lesson, I mean, I remember the good old days of like 2006, where like it was the opposite of 2008 from the kind of finance world in New York. Going out, spending a lot of money on food and dinner and like just living large and thinking the industry as a whole. Yeah. Yeah. The golden days will never end. Yeah. yeah. And then 18 months later, out of business. And as we have built Chow Now, we have pushed and we have grown and we've grown every single year. But there's some companies that have set out. And I think there's a mindset, obviously, in kind of Silicon Valley of like, go big or go home, mm -hmm. create a binary scenario. If you don't become a $10 billion business in the matter of a couple of years, you're worthless and might as well not be a business. I don't have that mindset. Right. I think you can build a really great business that does really good things and both makes money and provides a good platform for customers. We have pushed, but we've never gone so far over our skis that we are, frankly, created a binary situation and potentially could be out of business in a matter of months. And a lot of that came from those days at Lehman and kind of seeing it was the largest bankruptcy in the history of the world. Yeah. Right. So like <laughs> I, I got it in a first row. So That's to witness that. an amazing yeah. formative thing to have, especially like Jordan was talking about earlier, the race and the competition, right? And like one way to win and one of the most visible ways to win is just to raise absurd amounts of money. For the individual founder, it doesn't necessarily matter if they, to use your term, like go over their skis or whatever. Like, you know, that in itself is a feather in their cap that they can then take on to do whatever they want with after the fact. A lot of other people yeah. get hurt as a result of it, but maybe not necessarily the founder. You know, so that to you has never been tempting because of this experience, because you just saw like, I see what can go wrong if you start getting a little more hungry than perhaps you can handle. Yes. Yeah. The way I kind of visualize it is like, it could be a race. And I saw this first hand with all the banks back then, like just outdoing each other to have higher revenue, to resell more and more mortgages and to constantly chase each other in, like, in that time frame in the kind of housing crisis of 2005 to 2008 time frame. So I witnessed it firsthand. I just saw it. Like I, I wasn't in that side of the bank. I wasn't that side of the business, but I was still within the bank. So I, I witnessed it. And what no one at the time realized, or very few, some people did, but not many people did, is that that racetrack had a cliff. Yeah. And you just had these kind of cars flying off the cliff. In some cases, if you were in fourth place, you saw the other cars flying off the cliff and you're like, okay, I could put the brakes on. I could probably on. break. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the kind of the wily coyote type, like yeah. just, you know, fall off the cliff type thing. Again, it's not like we're slow and steady. We're still fast and steady. Yeah. Yeah. But we're not, we, we're taking there. the brakes off the car. Right. Yeah. yeah. Has it affected your selection when it comes to investor partners? Like when you're going out and raising, um, is that top of mind? Or what do you think about when you're going into the fundraising process? Yeah, it has changed over the years, no doubt. Early days were desperate. We were taking money from anyone. That's uh, <laughs> the truth back in like 2011. Thank goodness. I feel like a lot of people don't yeah. admit that, but it's fine to admit that, especially with a 10 years yeah. grace, I guess. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's probably some standards. And as someone who didn't come from tech, who isn't an engineer, who can't code, it was very hard raising that first mm -hmm. round of funding to come from New York. I also, I, I never went to college, so I didn't have that. Frankly, that doesn't really matter when it comes to VCs. No one's ever asked me where I went to college. <laughs> it was just kind of in, incredible in, in, in some ways. But, you know, like so many other naive founders, I read TechCrunch and, you know, and, and Gadget and all these other kind of blogs and things back then and keep reading about these companies that are raising money. And like, this is, this is not hard at all. Right. And a friend in the tech scene in New York connected me with a bunch of VCs. I had 30 meetings, like, well, at least one or two of them are going to like give us like a you know, term sheet. Not one of them did. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, well, this is harder. So we went back, raised some money from friends and family, uh, brought on, we've technically got like a, a distant, like co third co-founder. Hmm who's an engineer, a very, very, very good engineer. He joined us about six to seven months after we started the company. Uh, and then he built a very small engineering team with this little amount of capital that we had raised from, from friends and family. And then we were able to build a product 
And then, and then as at that point, we got it, we're able to be a little bit pickier with, with our investors. And then as time has gone on, as the product has grown and we've got multiple term sheets over the years, we've been able to be more selective with investors. One thing that I think we have never, never raised capital from, from any of the Silicon Valley Bay right. area VCs. And I think part of that is kind of who I am as a person growing up in LA and then live in New York for whatever reason, all our investors are in LA and New York. And I feel like I have been able to connect. I also feel like I am, and I've been told this kind of, I am not been, I'm not a good enough at BSing <laughs> back to that kind of binary, like, yeah. Hey, this is like, I think we're building a big business. I've, I've been very honest with like how big I think this business could be. And it, it you know, can make all our investors very happy one day. And even today, I think they're all pretty darn happy on paper. Um, but you go to Silicon Valley and they want this like, yeah, these crazy stories, these like, you know, and, and you know, the Travis Kalanick kind of added Newman examples. Uh, those are extreme examples, but right. like something along those lines. And I've just never been able, I've never been good enough at BSing the story that much, in my in my opinion. To connect. Uh, something about New York investors, in my opinion, is they're a little bit more grounded. Right. Um, and my background is kind of coming I up. Totally yeah, finance and and our investors, like, they're, they're very quiet on Twitter. They're, they don't blog all that often. I mean, they're just kind of like, they're great investors. Are they great even track investors records. at all? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, exactly. But coming back to like, where do you sit alongside your portfolio companies? Like there's some, and you probably know them, probably know them personally. Like it's all about them and their brands. Yeah. And, you know, if they have a portfolio company that's successful, like it only elevates their own brand and they will let you know which portfolio companies they invested in early on. Um, for some reason, you know, LA is maybe in the kind of middle of the Silicon Valley, kind of uh, New York, uh, kind of. Um, and then New York is like just kind of more grounded, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, and I've connected with them. And I think it's just kind of like those are kind of my my people. having lived in there for, for so many years and obviously living in L.A. for most of my life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. it's similar to, to the Toronto. The, the Toronto scene is similarly, I would say, relatively stayed. I mean, I think yeah. even more conservative than the New York one, frankly. But like, I think it's it's funny that you, that you talk about the branding thing and it being so important to like shout out like this was our company, yeah. right? Because yeah. we've yeah. talked about <laughs> we've talked previously about a lot of investors will do the like, oh, and we built this and we did, and it's like, did you? I mean, you were maybe yeah. <laughs> you gave the money and then the other yeah. and then the company did that, but like, yeah. I don't, I wouldn't say we. Uh, and I feel like that is a valley thing i also feel like um this is the, <laughs> this is very behind the scenes but like me and jordan and everybody at TechCrunch get lots of messages that are like oh hey you didn't list uh firm xyz in this yeah. uh post or whatever and most of the time it's it's never malicious i mean it's just like if i list all these things this sentence sucks like it's just hard to read <laughs> so i'm not yeah, gonna do yeah. it well yeah. even I mean, there are a lot of startups that don't even send them, yeah. right? Like I got a text from a VC who I won't name, who was like, you wrote about a company that I invested in at the pre-seed stage and now they're big and they have this series A from a bunch of big name investors. And like, should I reach out to the company and tell them to always include <laughs> oh, no. me? Well, I didn't even respond to it because I was like, I don't know how to... Like, don't do that to their portfolio. <laughs> but like, <laughs> like I, I just think a lot know, of... They don't even pass If I did the stats like that, and Jordan, I don't know if this is true, but I feel like it would be more Silicon Valley-based companies that want that that name yeah. check. But I don't know. That's that's an anecdotal. firms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. firms, yeah. yeah we, I mean, like, it matters. You can't, like, blame no, them, no. right? Like, they, everybody shot. wants their yeah, nut, yeah, yeah. you know? But, like, yeah, I get it. And, like, that's how you get your new deal flow yeah. and stuff, right? So, like, the more your name and SEO and all that stuff is out there, the more people are willing to come to you and be like, hey, do you want to invest in this? And you have your pick of the litter. But, like, there's something to be said for, I mean, it kind of comes back to what we were talking about, which is, like, what can you do to balance being out there enough to do right by your company and your shareholders and everyone involved? but not to the point where that's the end goal, right? Like it has, it has, um, it's shades of Elizabeth Holmes for mm, me a yeah, little bit yeah. too, right? Like I'm in the midst of watching the dropout. Yeah. So it's like top of mind. And obviously that's a very like, I mean, maybe an embellished version of the story. Yeah. It could be a watered down version. Who the hell knows really at the end of the day, but like just the need to win and be on top and be the number one and be the face of everything is so ultimately like turns out to be so toxic yeah. to everyone. 
including yourself. Oh, yeah. I mean, you if know? you get like, caught oh. up in that, it's bad, bad news, right, for your mental health and everything. I mean, everyone but me. I obviously am the winner <laughs> and the number one at the base <laughs> and on top. Yeah, but that was never in question, I think, me. right? So <laughs> No, it's unquestionable. Uh, um, yeah, I think, I mean... The the only other question I had about kind of the that switch was like when did you decide like oh what I think I should be doing is starting my own business and also it's going to be in this area like did you think about other things uh, did you know you wanted to be an entrepreneur first or did you know you wanted to solve this problem first or how did that go I knew eventually I did I uh, so I grew up um, so I'm, I'm 40 which then puts me in high school in the late 90s uh, and in the late 90s was the first dot com boom. As someone who just loved tech, um, I, I tracked it closely. I, I even started in high school, a company that went absolutely nowhere hmm. um, called caragrids.com because I was also in the cars back then. It's a good URL. Kind of, yeah, it was great. Uh, I, don't, <laughs> I haven't looked it up in years. Um, and it was just selling aftermarket car. It was like an e-commerce site, but like I, I didn't do it. I got you know, my wholesale licenses to buy products and I, I had no money. I was 17 or something like that. Right. Um, and so th- that was my first failed attempt that lasted probably five months. It wasn't a, a long, lo- long journey on that one. But I, that is where kind of appreciation for tech products, you know, the, the, you know, everyone else that was looking up to Steve Jobs and still does. And that kind of, that put, put me in that kind of time frame. And um, my parents both have their own business. Most of my kind of family members, uncles, aunts have their own businesses. So that's what I saw growing up. Um, the, the other thing I got to like though, in, in the nineties was stocks cause everything went up and I would pick a stock and it would go up. I'm like, damn, I'm good at this. And <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you look back years later, like, oh, what, what an idiot. <laughs> um, but like, it was like those, that econ class in high school where like you, you pick a portfolio of stocks, you track it. And like, again, you could have picked anything on that yeah, list yeah. back in, in the late nineties cause everything went up before the crash. And, and this was a year or two before the crash. That's what actually got me into stocks, which took me to New York, and I, I followed that path. But I was always so envious, reading constantly about all these these new tech companies coming out. And again, whether it was TechCrunch and Gadget or any of the other kind of publications back then, I would read them constantly. Um, and that was actually when I was trading. That's what I would trade more often. So, like hmm. when Palm came out with the pre like it was a new oh, yeah. kind of invention right like and it was like they had this exclusive contract with sprint and it was this big thing and you know you had web os like i knew that story inside and out like i'd go to sprint stores just to see like how many people were lining up i was like obsessive over that um it was a great so that's just if people if listeners yeah. don't know go look it up because it was wonderful it was uh yeah a really uh, unmatched i think still and it's such a shame what, like yeah, that didn't well, go anywhere, but yeah, hundred percent. And and the iPhone, the um, iOS today is very much WebOS yeah. from from twelve or fourteen years ago. Um, if you look at, if you do side, I, I think people already have done this comparison, but it's like this: the gestures and the swipes, and to be able to like swipe the 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 app to close it and get it off, like that all came from WebOS. Yeah. Like Palm had done that um, in what 20, 2007 or whatever it was. Um, and so point being is like, I obsessed over that personally, but also, and so um, I always knew I wanted to, to start something. I I didn't feel like I belonged in a massive company in a massive bank. I just felt kind of like an outsider, which I kind of enjoyed to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I knew it wasn't my, my entire life's calling. And so after talking to restaurant owners and seeing that here's an opening to do something with tech, with restaurants I also love, that's where the idea came together. So I moved back to LA in 2010, I went to Argentina for, for about six months to kind of unwind and um, New York was fun, but like 2008, 2009 was slightly stressful and less yeah. fun than it was in 2006, 2005, six and seven. And so that's where they're kind of like, huh, I wonder if there's something here. I've talked to restaurant owners in New York. Um, I was involved, the family was involved in, in a very small way in a restaurant in LA that had just got going. They were saying very similar things about E24, which is like the LA's version or California's version of, of Seamless. They mm-hmm. eventually both got bought by Grubhub. And that's where the idea started like spin of like, hey, I don't want to move back to LA to trade stocks. I want to do something. I want to build something. And it all kind of all these ideas kind of collided at once. And and I don't think anyone has a, a fully formed idea day one. It's not like you wake up and you're like, you have that entire vision. Right. Vision usually is formed by inputs from other people, in this yeah. case, restaurant owners and other people. And and that was 2010, which we kind of referenced earlier. The, the company really got started in 2011. 2010 was just like tinkering with ideas. Gotcha. 2011 is like, okay, let's 
go full time. My co-founder and I go full time on it, raise some capital and and get to get to work. Right. I mean, I think that's a really good point to raise, especially for people who are not founders or are considering it or like interested in the idea, but like feel unsure about it is like. Yeah. You don't start with like, well, you know what I've got? It's Uber. And like, you know, like, and this is how it works and it's everything. Like, that's not how it works, right? Like you go out and you kind of go like, I feel like there's something to fix here, maybe. And maybe I'll talk to people and see what it is and, you know, how we can do it and compare it to other things and look at what they're doing and see like what they're missing. Like, it's a very slow, gradual process with a build. And you kind of like have a nebulous idea and then it firms up over time, right? It's not like totally all at once. Yeah. The other thing I think people forget is that any large business that's been around for years has transformed itself over time. Right. That that original idea rarely lasts forever. Yeah. It, it almost never does. And so the company that you're starting is not designed around that one product. Like a lot of what we do today, that one product has kind of morphed. It's it's expanded. But yeah. like you, you referenced like the Facebook ordering. Like we, we don't even really support that anymore because right. it's changed. We have Instagram ordering to now, and we have a whole bunch of other things that we didn't do back then, but but the world is changing. And if you don't evolve, I think people like, I don't hear, in my opinion, enough about this, about how companies transform Yeah, and that original idea and you're pitching, hey, this thing's going to be a multi-billion dollar idea in your seed round, in your series A, likely isn't. Yes. The, company, <laughs> the company may become a multi-billion dollar company. That original product likely changes quite a bit. And it has to eventually get reinvented. We, you know, talking about Palm as an example, they didn't do it quick enough and they went away. Hey, um, WebOS is on my LG yeah. TV right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Something yeah. called WebOS is on my LG yeah, TV. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, Blackberry is another example. Like you constantly have to reinvent yourself. And if you're not, somebody's going to just kind of eat your lunch for you if yeah. you don't kind of think about it. So, um, that's something I've been, you know, now that we've been around for a decade, I think about what's the next decade. How does this business have to evolve and change to keep up with the times? Otherwise, if we don't change anything and we just we put blinders on and we say, hey, what we've what we've been doing for the last decade is going to get us 10 years down the road. Like we won't be here in 10 years. Like right. I can almost guarantee that. It's a good lesson. And it's never it never ends. Like you never reach a point where it's like, OK, good. Now we're yeah. static and it's keep true. Yeah. Right. It's like, no, look at Intel. Look at everybody. It changes. Yes. Right? Yeah. 100%. And, and that's why I'm always kind of. I find it so interesting when people want to go start a new company and do it again. It's like, I actually think, I once described that we'd never, we'd never kept this in our bio, but in one of our boilerplate for the company years ago, I described this as a studio that made products for restaurants. Mm. And the reason I like studio is because like you're constantly in there tinkering and constantly, mm-hmm. if you don't think of it that way, uh, we, we've never used that. I've, someone tells taught me out of using it, describe <laughs> this as, as a studio, but I do have to think about ourselves as constantly kind of inventing. And so from that aspect, I'd rather think of today as like the first day of the company and like, what, what is the resources we have? Yeah. We have tens of tens of millions of dollars in revenue. We have, you know, 500 employees. We have all this stuff. To me, that's much more exciting than starting day one from scratch with nothing to start. So like, to me, it's like starting a new company today yeah. um, versus, versus um, really, you know, selling the business. And then started started again from from nothing. I don't know. That's great. That's great. To, That's a great perspective. It feels so refreshing and energizing, right? Too to to be wake up to that and be like, look at this. Like I have all this before me. What can I do with it? And it's so yeah. much. I mean, this is a terrible comparison, so I don't think that people will use this. But it's kind of like a roguelike in the video game. <laughs> that, like you on each run, like you gain skills in a crew, and then you start new, and you're like, okay, now I'm much better for this run than I was last run. That, that I don't think that's going to market well with the general masses, but uh, your your way of putting it was much better, Chris. So thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's yeah. we're about out of time, but thanks so much. It was really great chatting with you. And yeah, I love learning about this. I, and also just I'll put in a request that you bring the Chat Now app to Canada as soon as possible. Not available in the Canadian app store. Yet, <laughs> yeah, we, we have some work to do here in the US. We, we technically right. have restaurant clients in Canada. I don't believe our app is the Chat Now app. We just don't have enough restaurants. You'd open the app. Yeah, you're like, yeah. There's three three restaurants here in, in you know wherever you are in your neighborhood and yeah and uh you're like this is kind of lame so so until so we believe we launch something that's not lame uh it'll be us only for now all right canadian restaurateurs yeah. get on there to help out <laughs> plug free plug <laughs> yeah yeah we need we need a power of sales team on on yeah. canada at some point yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right thanks very much yeah no, thank you it's been fun
Okay, that was our chat with Chris and Jordan. What did you think about our conversation? And what do you think about Chow now? Yeah, well, I thought it was a great conversation. I think the piece that I was most into was talking about the startup hype cycle and how Chow Now has, for the most part, flown under the radar in a pretty crowded, big space, especially one that has like a lot of consumer facing app services, angles, whatever, and kind of trying to stay humble, but also being candid about like how that feels all the time Mm -hmm. and not, you know, Mm -hmm. kind of being in the news and being in the magazines. People are on covers of magazines still, right? It's 2020. That still is a thing, but. I believe that magazines still exist. I believe if you go to a store, a physical store. There's still some magazines there. There are shelves and magazines. Or an airport. I feel like that's where I see the most magazines. Yeah. But. I can't I can't say for sure, but I think that's true. <laughs> it's been a while since we've been to an airport, to be honest. <laughs> but I liked that bit. And I also liked and also was intrigued, maybe, is a more is a better way to say it. The bit about Chow Now kind of being like the good guy, this persona that Chris and Chow Now have kind of like cloaked themselves in as the good guy, like right. doesn't charge the same exorbitant fees and like really puts the restaurants first. And I think that's interesting because I we talked about like modeling after Patagonia and how, you know, there's like an X factor, like an unquantifiable benefit you get from actually being that in the space. But I also think it's kind of precarious for a company to like sure. yeah. pronounce that because it leaves very little room for error that most companies do make. And it also puts you in a box in terms of what you're able to do with your business. I mean, some businesses have to be cutthroat. Some have to. Right kind of do the gray thing instead of being so black and white in order to succeed. And so, I don't know. I think that's interesting. He's one that I would love to check in with again, you know, and see like, how's that going being the good guy? Yeah. I mean, well, they have, you know, they've been around around since 2012. Yeah. They got a full decade under their belt. So that I think seems to indicate that what they're doing is a smart approach. Right. But I think it's like the pressure from the other side is not going anywhere and is probably only increasing. The more you grow, you're right. You're right about reputational risk. Right. Like as soon as you put yourself out there as the good guy in some way, you're immediately more susceptible to any failings you have in that area right and they can do a lot more damage than they could for somebody else who never made those claims to begin with right right i think i think again like based on chow now's just kind of existence to date it seems like they're navigating that correctly and we've seen some of their competitors do big missteps in that direction right Mm -hmm. be like oh we're all about drivers or whatever for uber for instance and then all of a sudden all the drivers are like we hate oh are you because we work for you and this sucks (laughs) right but I think, you know, I I think it's the thing where the on the other side of it, and you touched on this too, all of that is subject to how much do consumers care in the end, right? Because right. then you're up against that every time where it's like, do, do consumers vote with their conscience in that way with dollars, especially when it comes to convenience services? Or are they just cool with whatever, basically? Well, and how will they feel in the future too, right? Because I think like being the good guy brand wise, whether it's like sustainability or just like treating your workers right or whatever, I think we're all more inclined with where we work and the way we spend our money and who we vote for and all of these things to like be thinking about who aligns with our values generally. I also yeah. think though, that like i mean by by default a company is like at neutral whether it's like morally good or bad right and when you right. make a reputation for being the bad guy like a i'm just going to go ahead and say it like a facebook or an amazon or an uber like but you become indispensable it really doesn't matter and it gives you more freedom to move honestly like i mean that's true facebook yeah. has the money to pay whatever fine the government sees fit and to keep doing whatever the f- it wants to do and it's indispensable to a lot of people and they're going to keep using it. And so it gives you a lot of room and freedom that doesn't really matter in the end, right? That you were the bad yeah. guy. Maybe it does with like talent acquisition and stuff. But will that always be the case? Well, maybe what it I don't matter, know, right? matters with global karma, too. universal karma. Too, totally. Right? I'm not maybe. saying it doesn't matter. Like it matters <laughs> a lot. Like I deleted my Facebook, but I still use Instagram. Or, I mean, I still use yeah. Instagram. I still use Uber to an extent and I still use yeah. Amazon, right? Like, and I don't necessarily align with their values. So maybe I'm bad too. You just, I think you, when you say you're the good guy, you take the humanity out of it. Cause we all say like, oh, I stand for this. But in reality, we're all making concessions yeah, on our, our values every day, right? And we forgive discordant it. Discordant with our... Yeah, yeah, and we forgive it yeah. because, like, humans are humans. But 
I don't know. I thought that was really, uh, all that to say, I thought that was a really interesting piece of the conversation. Yeah, same. But I think he brings up a good point when he brings up Patagonia as a as an example, because it's another thing where it's not all or nothing, right? So we're bringing up mm-hmm. all these examples. It's like, yeah, it is a good approach to go in kind of like amoral or like from a business standpoint, right? Because then you don't really have to call anything back. And if you can secure your position, you're kind of bulletproof in a lot of ways, right? But mm-hmm. at the same time, it's also cool to go in with a, this approach where you're like, you know what? We're going to aim for this level of success and we're going to do it based on these values and we'll have like a really dedicated customer base as a reward for that, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a different kind of business, but equally valid and still, you know, of use to everyone who is both a consumer and employee of the thing, right? So yeah. I think I think it's cool that they're taking this approach and that it continues to exist alongside and hasn't been clouded out or um, domped under the boots of the whatever VCs else. or the whatever. World. Yeah, the pressures. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like yeah. it too. I thought, I mean, just it goes to show how much we can prattle on about it afterwards. That it was, he's an interesting guy, interesting company, interesting chat, yeah. and all about it. And interesting too that he was, a, he was willing to talk about, I mean, these, there's been 10 years, so who knows where these people are on his cap table if they even are anymore. But talking about like in the early days, he was like, yeah, I'll take money, take money from anyone. anyone. Yeah, just like write me a check right now. And yeah. We're good yeah. to go. Like not, most of the people we talk to are in the <laughs> stage where they're not going to say that because those people, are still very much important. Like they're like crucial stakeholders, right? And even if they're having trouble with them, they're not going to say that at this point. But right. maybe well, when we check in a decade later, they'll say that. I do think that it's changed though for startups. Like I it think has. they the are a lot more choosy, right? And like yeah. VCs are having to clean up their act a little bit and show that they yeah. are value come, aligned. Yeah, and mission aligned. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but it's great. Chris was great to talk to, but in general, it was just nice to talk to a much more mature startup than we usually do and get a kind of perspective on things to complement the more early stage chats that we usually have. Really enjoyed it. And yeah, I'm going to go order some food now. So take it easy, Jordan. Later, dude. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch News Editor Daryl Etherington, and TechCrunch Managing Editor Jordan Crook. Yashad Kulkarni is our executive producer. We are produced by Maggie Stamitz and edited by Cal Keller. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and on Twitter at twitter.com slash found. You can also email us at found at techcrunch.com, and you can call us and leave a voicemail at 510-936-1618. Also, we'd love if you could spare a few minutes to fill out our listener survey at bit.ly slash found listener survey. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.